Welcome to Life Study of the Bible, provided by Living Stream Ministry and featuring the ministry of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. Witness Lee served the Lord faithfully for more than 70 years, culminating with his exhaustive commentary on the entire scriptures called Life Study of the Bible. We're happy to bring you recorded excerpts from his ministry. At the end of the program, we'll give you the website where you can find out more about the remarkable ministry of these two men. But for now, we hope you enjoy today's program. The book of Acts reveals the outward trials and life-threatening events that confronted the Apostle Paul. Yet hidden within these interesting stories are periods of absolute seclusion and reflection by the Apostle. What role did these periods play in the eventual unfolding of God's plan for His people in the pages of the New Testament? We will look today at some of the great writings of the Bible and how God used every circumstance in the life of His chosen servant to bring to light his New Testament economy. On today's Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, a program furnished by Living Stream Ministry and based on the ministry of Witness Lee and Watchman Nee. We have Witness Lee's 1984 recorded message from the Book of Acts today, and once again, Ron Kangas has offered his time to assist us as we near the conclusion of what has been a very memorable journey through the Book of Acts. Welcome back once again, Brother Ron. I'm happy to be here as we're nearing journey's end. Ron, our current life study, as we've mentioned, is on the book of Acts, yet our program today is going to focus on selected portions from four other great books of the New Testament, specifically those are Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Hebrews. All of these books are traced to the Apostle Paul, but what do they have to do with the book of Acts? One way we could say these books are related to um, the book of Acts They're related to the circumstances of Paul's life recorded in the last few chapters of Acts. Books such as Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians were written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. How Paul got to Rome in the first place is an outcome of the events recorded toward the end of Acts. As a result of Paul's confinement, and house arrest, he surely had a time of quiet, a time to reflect, and a time to be prepared by the Lord's Spirit to write these great prison epistles. Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and also Hebrews are related to Acts in the sense that the environment in which Paul found himself as a result of certain tumultuous events in Acts, afforded him the opportunity to be prepared by God for further ministry, especially in writing. The Lord wanted to release a complete revelation concerning his New Testament economy, and he wanted Paul to be in the best environment to prepare him for that. A second way in which these epistles are related to Acts concerns the matter of dispensational transfer. And the need for the dispensational transfer is, of course, related to the situation of mixture in Jerusalem. In these epistles, we see a revelation of God's economy in full. These epistles could only have been written by someone who himself 
had made a complete dispensational transfer out of the old covenant and into the new covenant. If we compare the mixture in Acts with what is revealed in these four epistles, we see a striking contrast. So it's illuminating to read Acts in the light of these epistles and to read these epistles in the light of Acts. We hope many of us would do so, and we hope further that many of us would be impressed with the need to forsake any kind of mixture and compromise and to be absolutely one with the Lord according to his revelation to carry out the New Testament economy of God. In this matter, Paul is a wonderful positive example, and James, at least to some extent, is a negative one. Well, Ron, I structured the uh, question for that introduction for the sake of those listeners who are wondering why in this Life Study of Acts are we going to spend this broadcast looking at these other books. But as you've pointed out so clearly for us, the Lord used all of these events in Paul's life to really affect the dispensational transfer in him so that he could marvelously unveil it to us. Let's join Witness Lee. Out of that prison cell, he sent out all these uh, wonderful letters like uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then Hebrews. We shouldn't think those epistles were written by accident. Those epistles were written from a long preparation. Those two years when he was in the custody in Caesarea rendered much, much preparation to him. The more he saw the situation religion, politics, and church situation, and the more he compared what he has seen of the Lord, the more he got burdened to put out something. There was not a church up to that standard which could afford him a kind of audience to speak to them what was on his heart. But, no doubt, he surely intended to get a time to write down all these revelations concerning God's New Testament economy. And the Lord gave him a time to do this, and he did it. And today, we have these four books in our hand. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Hebrews. In these four books, I just point to you, the crucial points concerning this great transfer. In Ephesians, he said, Christ, in his flesh, while he was dying on the cross, he has abolished all the ordinances, Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, and that kind of Levitical way of eating. Yet still, James was promoting there. Don't you believe what Christ has abolished on the cross as ordinances? Surely that included the Nazareth vow. But you just compare what James did. In the past centuries, many who read Acts 21 did have that understanding. But now you can see what James did was contrary to what Christ had done on the cross. Christ abolished, yet James brought back and pushed it. 
Ron, as we read these books of Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians, against the background that we now have from this life study of Acts, we can see that Paul was very burdened to counter the effect of what was flowing out of Jerusalem under the primary influence of James. Give us a few specific examples from these writings of Paul that run counter to what was being practiced, and I would say even promoted, in Jerusalem. In Paul's epistles, we see God's view of the law, and we see that the law had a purpose. It was a child conductor to bring us to Christ. But now, in Christ, as those born of God, we live day by day, not according to the principle of law, but according to the principle of grace. James, however, seemed to exhibit too much fondness for the law and also a lack of clarity concerning God's New Testament economy with respect to the law of God from the Old Covenant and the grace of God in the New Covenant. Remember, James pointed out to Paul that these Jewish believers were zealous for the law. Well, to be zealous for the law is far different in the eyes of God from being zealous for Christ or zealous for the divine dispensing or zealous for the grace of God. Another contrast concerns ordinances. In Ephesians 2, Paul makes it very clear that all the ordinances of the law have been nullified through the death of Christ on the cross. These ordinances were a factor of enmity that kept the peoples from being at peace with one another. So according to the revelation given to Paul, all these ordinances have been terminated. In Paul's revelation, we have a clear view of God's economy. With our brother James and those under his influence, we see some amount of mixture. And Paul was burdened for this as God was burdened for it. Eventually, as the historical records indicate, the mixture in Jerusalem had to be eradicated. Paul was extricated from that situation and put into another situation where he could be used by God to release through his later epistles a marvelous revelation of the divine economy of God. Ron, it seems that in, uh, particularly in the book of Ephesians, Paul goes to great length to present the one new man, the complete abolishing, not just of the ordinances, but even the racial and cultural differences that existed. And had the Lord not sovereignly intervened in the situation in Jerusalem on the course they seem to have been on, it's very likely that the church would have really been broken into two totally separate practices and classifications of believers, isn't it? It could have been broken and divided as the organized church has been throughout its centuries. But there was another peril, and that was mixture, that there wouldn't be necessarily division, but instead of a pure and absolute testimony of the corporate expression of Christ, there would be a mixture of the things of the New Testament economy with the Old Testament economy, and that mixture violates the God-ordained principle of absoluteness And that mixture would be a great threat to the believers, such as uh, we today, centuries later, we would have inherited a mixed situation and an unclear revelation. Instead of inheriting through Paul a testimony of absoluteness 
and a crystal clear revelation of the New Testament economy of God. Let's go back. We've got another very enjoyable section from Witness Lee just ahead. In Ephesians, you have too many things on the passive side. For instance, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, I'm so little, yet God has given me a ministry to preach the unsearchable Christ to the Gentiles. You just keep in mind, in Ephesians, it says clearly Christ has abolished all the Old Testament Judaic ordinances. Then, in Philippians, Paul told us all those Judaic things, Hebrew things, all are done. A Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcision, all those things in the eyes of God, now, in the New Testament economy, all are dead, D-U-N-G, dog food. My, what can a vision within Paul? But, again, James, what a shame, this dear brother. He promoted the dog food. Okay, then, we come to Colossians. In Colossians, Paul says, now in the new man, there's no Jew, no Greek, no free, no bondman, but Christ. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all the members. Christ is all the parts of the new man, and he is in all the parts. What revelation? There's not one inch ground still left for any Judaism. Then, when you come to Hebrew, my Hebrew told us Christ is everything. Christ is God, Christ is man, Christ is Moses, even superior to Moses. Christ is Joshua, and Christ is Aaron, or high priest, and Christ is everything. And he has accomplished all the offerings, and all the offerings were gone. And Christ is single. The unique, the only, the soul, S-O-L-E, the soul offering replaces all the offerings. This the only offering that God cares for. And all the other offerings were just types of this only one. Now the only one comes, all the others would be over. So even there's such a word, there's no more sin offering in chapter 10. And the old covenant was over. Everything was over of the Old Testament. But how could James, brother, look, tens of thousands believers here are zealous for the law. Now you do something to pay the charges for these, for Nazarites. You compare these. What is this? Now, have you got the view? Well, Ron, we've looked at the primary epistles of Paul to the Gentile churches in our first section, and these clearly demonstrate the dispensational transfer. Now, how about the letter to the Hebrews? It seems that this very finely focused message in the book of Hebrews is absolutely in opposition to holding on to any vestige of old covenant practice. It is profoundly absolute in presenting a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this contrast is backed up by 
what we can only follow Paul to call the word of righteousness and the promise of a dispensational reward. Hebrews is a profound and weighty epistle. The writer of Hebrews was burdened that the Hebrew Christians who had truly been saved, who had been regenerated, and who were meeting, at least initially, in the church life, would be faithful to the Lord and to forsake the abrogated Old Testament system and go on in faith to enjoy the Lord and to take the way of the cross to carry out the way of God's New Testament economy. The book of Hebrews shows us that all the types, the figures, and the Old Testament related to Christ's redemption and his priesthood have been fulfilled. Because of this fulfillment, the Old Testament system has been nullified. The old has been done away with. The new has come. Christ is all in all. Christ is the center and the focus of God's New Testament economy. Our following of him needs to be absolute and uncompromising. There is no room for mixture. There is no room for compromise. And there is no tolerance for going back to the old way of worship and serving. In the sight of God, it's over. All the believers need to go within the veil to enjoy the heavenly Christ in the Holy of Holies and then go outside the camp of religion unto Jesus and live a church life daily and practically in and for the fulfillment of the New Testament economy of God. Well, there is a threat to believers today, and that really is the focus of this last section of Witness Lee's sharing. Let's join him for that. Among all Christians, even among the Gentiles, all have the New Testament. With Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Hebrews. From my youth, I heard a lot of messages from the pastors, preachers. They spoke many times from Ephesians. Oh, husband, love your wives. And a favorite verse, save the back grace in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Have you ever heard a message that told you Christ on the cross has abolished all the ordinances, the racial differences, all have been abolished on the cross? Even today, in the 20th century, they still promote this difference to keep a big gap between the races. Ephesians is here. But they all misuse it. They don't care for God, New Testament economy. They have never seen it. They just picked up some fragments from such a book concerning God, New Testament economy as Ephesians. They pick up fragments for their own purpose. I never heard a message on the positive side preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ for Christ to make his hole deep down in our heart. I never heard such a message. Many of you are graduates from seminaries. When you were studying the Bible courses in your seminary, has you ever been taught with the unsearchable riches of Christ that Christ may make his soul deep down in your heart? 
Then from Philippines, they don't tell people much that all these religious things are dog food. Rather, they just pick up verses like this. You should have the heart of Jesus. You should have the mind which Jesus had. Then what they pick up from Colossians? It seems here in Colossians, nothing for them to pick up. Then in Hebrews, they pick up recently. Because we say Christ was God, then he became a man. And then as a man, the last Adam, he became the life-giving spirit. Then they pick up a verse from Hebrews 13, verse 8, saying, Jesus Christ was the same today, yesterday, and forever. They say, Jesus never became anything. Now, how could we necessarily say Jesus changed? All these four books are here. But they don't use it properly to carry out the real burden of the writer of these four books. To carry out God's New Testament economy. No, they pick up verses from these books to interpret in a way to fit their situation. I would say the situation is darker, worse, more pitiful than that in Jerusalem. Saints, go back home and take some time, like Paul took in the two years, in a quiet place, a longer time, not just one or two hours, to consider Judaism, Catholicism, Protestantism, consider about. And consider about world political situation. And consider about the Christian today. Where are they compromising, promoting the things God forsaken already? And then about yourself. You just consider what is on your heart? What have you seen as heavenly vision? What should you do? How could you carry out all the things I sure like that you would uh, be more and more filled up with the burden, that you would be ready, like Paul, to put out epistles. Thank the Lord that Paul did this. Ron, this was obviously a section that evoked a very strong, even passionate word from Witness Lee. It's easy to look back 2,000 years and reflect on the inadequacies of the first century church in Jerusalem and altogether miss the dangers that are very immediate to us today. Ron, what is the surest safeguard for us to keep from slipping into an old and tradition-laden routine? I believe the, the best answer to this question from within the context of Acts itself is found in chapter 2, verse 42. The apostles, with the remainder of the 120 were prepared by the Lord to establish and to develop his testimony beginning in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved, baptized, and added to the church. We're told in Acts 2.42 that they continued steadfastly in four things in two groups. They continued steadfastly in the teaching and fellowship of the apostles. This is the surest safeguard. If we would not only continue, but continue steadfastly, and steadfastly day by day, in the teaching of the apostles, 
we would be preserved from all mixture and all deviation. If we also continue steadfastly in the fellowship of the apostles, we will remain in the circulation of the flow of the divine life in the body of Christ and be preserved from all division. But then this verse mentions they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread and the prayers. These are not of the apostles. These are related to the church life as the practical expression of the body of Christ. So on the one hand, the believers continued in the two things related to the apostles, teaching and fellowship. On the other hand, they lived an actual and practical church life filled with prayer and filled with the proper remembrance of the Lord through the breaking of bread. So in some, we may say that the safeguard has two aspects. One aspect, the teaching and fellowship, is related to the apostles. The other aspect, the breaking of bread and the prayers, is related to the church life. So what I'm suggesting is, if we will be faithful to the divine revelation in the New Testament to continue steadfastly in the teaching and fellowship of the apostles and to continue in the proper church life, we will be, by the grace of God, preserved from what you call an old and tradition-laden routine. We will also be preserved from mixture, compromise, and deviation. The Lord really needs and is looking for this kind of continuation among his seeking people today. May he gain it, and may we cooperate with him concerning it. Ron, of course, the individual church life and practice of the listeners of our broadcast is something that's uh, very much outside of our ability to have much to do with, but we do look to the Lord daily that what we present is very much in the line of the fellowship and teaching of the apostles. I think we would express to our listeners this is a guiding burden and continual emphasis on all we do at Life Study of the Bible to try to stay very much in this line. That's right. This is our burden the goal of our ministry to present the teaching of the apostles in the way of the fellowship of the apostles. We want to be faithful to teach the principles concerning the Christian life and the church life. Thank you again, Ron, for your fellowship. It's always good to have you, and we hope that you come back very soon. Before we go, let me point out that this printed Life Study message in its entirety is included in our fourth volume of the Life Study of Acts. Our toll-free number for that purpose or just to receive your comments or your fellowship is 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 543-3788. And our mailing address is Living Stream Ministry, Post Office Box 2121, Anaheim, California, 92814. Or you can reach us with your email comments at radio at lsm.org. That's radio at lsm.org. And look us up on the World Wide Web. The web address is www.lsm.org. For today, and Ron Kangas, I'm Chris Wilde. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more information on Witness Lee and Watchman Nee, please visit our website, lsm.org. Again, that's lsm.org.
Thanks for listening today.